Well, it was just over five years ago that you all sent us out. I was just thinking, next year, that means it will make 10 years ago that we moved to Albuquerque, which is crazy. Uh, just enjoyed that first song that we all sang together, of age to age you have been a dwelling place for your children. This, this church has seen much change in the nine and a half years since we first came to here. There some people here that I undoubtedly haven't met. There's been some staff turnover, but praise the Lord. It is the same God that we worship, the same gospel, uh, and the same unity around that risen Christ. So I'm so thankful to be here with you all in one service. Uh, that's great, yeah. Uh, and it is so good to be here uh, thinking with you all through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Uh, and if we don't get this book right, we won't get much of the rest of the Bible right. So I'm glad to be here thinking about Genesis 4 and 5 with you. Uh, a while back, I read a story about uh, the colonial days of India. Uh, the British government was getting concerned about the number of cobras in the city of Delhi. So they began offering a bounty for every dead cobra that an Indian might bring to the British uh, initially, there were huge numbers of cobras being brought in. The, the snake population was de decreasing. It seemed to be a great success. But then the native Indians, who had coexisted for centuries with cobras, began breeding them in order to bring more dead cobras to the British. <laughs> Eventually, the British found out what was going on, and so they canceled the bounty program. Now, with no reward money, the Indians just released all of these newly bred cobras into the wild. An action that brought about a higher cobra population than before. A bad situation now getting much, much worse. Well, in Genesis 4 and 5 this evening, we're going to see what was a really bad situation in Genesis 3 get much worse in Genesis 4, and then even worse than that in Genesis 5. Even though God had created humanity to live in joy and perfect relationship with himself and with each other, Adam and Eve had decided that they knew better than God. They knew better than God what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was bad. After the birth of their children in chapter 4, we'll see Adam and Eve just disappear from the narrative. And while the characters disappear, their prideful legacy will continue on. In fact, like an increasing population of cobras, their lineage will even get worse and worse and worse. In chapter 3... We saw God give three curses, that of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, a second curse of difficulty in bearing children and difficulty in male-female relationships, and then problems with the land. And then God sent Adam and Eve out of his presence to now live under these curses. But now, without first promising, but, but not doing all that, without first promising that he would one day finally crush the head of the serpent with this singular seed of the woman. The first gospel, you remember this from Genesis 3.15, this first promise of blessing amidst cursing. So here's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 4. And indeed throughout the rest of the book, which has nearly every chapter marking either the advancement of God's blessing or the advancement of cursing often happening simultaneously. And so we're going to look at three headings this morning together in Genesis 4 and 5. That of the hardening of sin and the spiraling of sin, and yet, throughout and in the midst and simultaneously, the seed of blessing. So before we really get into this, let me just read chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 for us now. 
Now Adam and Eve, or Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So first of all, let's think through here the hardening of sin. We start off pretty well. Genesis 4, 1 and 2, we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, she conceived and bore Cain. And she says, of Cain, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, we don't know what Eve is thinking here, but she very likely could be thinking here that this is, in fact, the son, the one, the promised one who would come to crush the serpent's head. Now, in retrospect, we know that millennia later, this is not the case, but perhaps she's thinking, all right, second generation, here's the one. But if it's not going to be Cain, at least now she even has two options. She has the brother Abel as well. And they are both hard workers. We have a shepherd here and a farmer. But then very quickly, things begin to go really wrong. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord, we read, had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, first of all, we should say that there appears to be nothing in the sacrifices in and of themselves that made one of the sacrifices acceptable and the other one not acceptable. Some have tried to say that because Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice, this is what made it acceptable before the Lord. But in the later Levitical system, there are grain offerings that are just as required and are just as pleasing to the God as the blood sacrifices of animals. The problem seems to show itself in Cain's reaction. Cain was angry. His face fell. If Cain were generally concerned with, the, with God's glory, generally concerned with honoring him by sacrifice, like what do you think his response would have been if God had come to him in this way, had found his sacrifice not pleasing? What would a, a humble response have looked like? 
Perhaps like, oh man, what, what just went wrong? How has my brother's sacrifice found itself pleasing to the Lord, but mine has not? Like, Abel, what is different about you, brother? Is there something about your, your worship, your heart, your motivation for sacrifice that I am missing? It's like, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. But this is not his response. Cain's response isn't humble. It is angry. It is arrogant. He seems to have a heart that says, I've worked hard. Like, I am making a sacrifice to you. Do you know how much I would have enjoyed or we could have used all of these fruits, these grains? I deserve for you to be pleased with me. Like, don't you know who my parents are? They're kind of important. How dare you not be pleased with me? Jesus says that you shall know them by their fruits, and the fruit of Cain's non-worshipful heart is anger. And by the way, this is a new one, isn't it? Anger. We never really saw that one with Adam and Eve in chapter 3. Sure, there's blame shifting and hiding, and we don't really see anger. A few weeks ago, several of us read one pastor who said, In all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. And I think that's what we see here with Cain. So a textual clue for why God didn't accept Cain's offering is by his reaction. But if it weren't clear, the New Testament certainly clarifies it. In Hebrews 11:4, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So it is because of Abel's faith in God to accept his sacrifice as right, not because of anything that Abel had done, but because of God's righteousness, because of his holiness, because of his eternal character, that now Abel's sacrifice is accepted. So what's implied by that in Hebrews 11 is that Abel had faith, but then implied Cain did not. Cain did not have faith. God will likewise rebuke Israel time and time and time and time again for the next several millennia while they offer sacrifices merely out of a religious duty without the accompanying faith in God's character, the accompanying faith in his good promises. And yet... God is patient with Cain. Verses 6 and 7 are almost like, whoa, whoa, dude, Cain, slow down a minute. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will not your sacrifice be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God comes to Cain in a counseling session. He comes to him patiently, seeming to want to draw him out of his faithlessness. He gives a warning, like a warning sign on a mountain, dangerous, curvy road. These signs that come to us as drivers that say, what warning, slow down, curve ahead. And what is the implication of us as we're driving dangerous, curvy mountain roads if we ignore the signs that you will die in an exploding fireball? And the same is true for Cain. If you don't slow down, heed the warnings. So God asks, why are you angry? What's going on? If you do well, he says, if you repent, 
If you come to me in humility and genuine worship, will you not be accepted? Literally, will not your fallen face, imagine like a droopy face of sadness, will not your droopy face of sadness be uplifted into joy? Respond in humility and in love. Yes, it will. But here's the deal, Cain. If you do not repent and come to me in humility and in genuine worship, sin is waiting for you. It wants to destroy you. A few weeks into our moving into our first house that we bought here in Albuquerque, the one off of Wyoming that many of you have spent so many hours with us in, uh, we found two small black widows right on the corner of our front door, just outside. And this was the first time in Albuquerque I had seen a black widow. And so then immediately, having seen those, I walked around the whole of our house checking for more black widows. And sure enough, came around to the back door, sliding glass door, and right above it, which is where the chimney was, in the little corner, uh, there were two massive black widows, one on either side. I mean, like shelobe. Like, I think if I had put a ladder onto the roof, like, we would have found Frodo, like, wrapped up and ready to die. Uh, And so, guess what I did? I went inside, and I prayed that nothing bad would happen to my children or to us. I prayed that the spiders didn't lay eggs, reproduce themselves. I prayed that none of my children would put their hands in a shoe that they left outside or a toy sand bucket or something and find one of these black widows or their offspring who might bite them. Of course I didn't do that! (laughs) You guys had seriously began to like lose all your faith and trust in me, did you, as a father? I got a shoe, I got a, I got a ladder, I went onto the roof, and I smashed those suckers like 43 times each. <laughs> Bad sickness, possible death for like a, a toddler would have come from a black, a black widow bite. Death was literally crouching at both my front door and my back door, waiting to kill. And I had to do immediate business with it. You were all getting angry at my startling naivete as a father, weren't you? But I'm afraid we, like Cain, drastically underestimate, even tolerate the presence of sin in our lives, the presence of these dangerous black widows in our lives. Just assuming that things will work out on their own, maybe praying every now and then that God would do something. He would cause this danger in our lives to not actually do danger, but kind of just restrain it while being too lazy, while being too naive to drop a nuclear bomb on this danger. Or even worse, While we never advertise it like this, but if we're actually honest, we actually kind of like the spider, don't we? We take care of it to make sure that it's got all that it needs to stay alive. We say that we don't like it, but we actually nourish it. And then just hope in the end that it doesn't cause too much damage. We know that it'll cause some damage, but maybe it won't kill us. But God tells Cain that sin's desire is for you and you must rule over it. You must kill it. I'm sure you've heard around this church, but Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin 
or it will be killing you. Be killing black widows or they will be killing you. Sin desires to destroy you. If you do not kill it, it will kill you. Our sin nature does not just surrender. It will rob you of joy. It will rob you of life. And potentially, like the writer of Hebrews warns, it could harden your heart just enough that you abandon Christ altogether. We are not saved by our lack of sin. We are not saved by our killing of sin. We are saved by Christ's lack of sin, by his killing of sin, and then putting all of our lives in him by faith. But brothers and sisters, beware. It may just be that you're undealt with and your coddling of sin in your life, your coddling and even small nourishing of discontentment, of lust, of anger or of fear, of covetousness, of lack of self-control. All of these things left undealt with can grow and grow and grow and can crowd out and ultimately extinguish our love for Christ. I think all of us probably in this room likely know someone who at one point in their life professed faith in Christ, but their love for the world, their love for themselves became their undoing. Trust the cross of Christ for your only means of salvation, but do not be naive. Daily walk nearly with him. Sin is serious. It is serious. But God's grace is more serious. He is more committed to your holiness than you are. And he provides all that you need. All of this patient grace, this overwhelming flood of love for you in your sin that you might fight the good fight. In fact, Christ has fought the good fight for you. Now, live in light of that reality. As John would write over and over and over again in his gospel and in 1 John, live in the light. Christ has won the battle for you. You are his if you are. Now live in the light. Be killing sin as in the light. Don't go back to the darkness. Live as if you are in the light. Well, because of the now sinful nature that Cain has inherited from his parents, it is his natural inclination to do what is selfish, to do what is prideful, to do what is self-worshipping and self-promoting. God does enter this counseling session with him, essentially saying what we've already considered, like, Cain, Cain, you're not just going to stumble into holiness here. This isn't just a natural byproduct of just knowing that I exist. You're going to need to fight this anger against your brother. You're going to need to fight this anger against me, or it will one day be your undoing. And note here, we know this story, but note here, Cain has not killed his brother yet. They have just offered their sacrifices, and God is trying to patiently draw him out of his sin. But how does he respond? Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Like his parents, Cain did not listen to God. It appears he didn't see or didn't acknowledge this slow down, curve ahead, warning sign that God had placed in his life. He went out walking with his little brother. And out of angry self-worship, he murdered him. Like, there is so much murder, so much death in the Bible. Like, I think we can just like fly past that verse. 
He murdered his brother in a perhaps bloody, gory scene. Like deliberately, the one who he used to like play trucks with in the sandbox. He murdered him, brutal and terrible, until his actual brother stopped breathing. I mean, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinfully, or, or sinned willfully, but they were like convinced by the serpent. Eve was deceived. In Genesis 4, God himself comes interrupting this moment, their, their, their own, or Cain's own moment at the tree, coming to him, trying to convince him to pursue righteous, righteousness. And Cain responds to God himself, basically like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. The level of hardening toward God is already beginning just in one generation. And this level of unrepentance and hardness continues in Cain. In Genesis 3, the Lord comes to Adam and asks, Where are you, Adam? Adam and Eve are hiding. Again, we've got some blaming going on. It's an all-round crummy day, a really, really terrible day in the history of the universe. But Adam, I think, Adam ultimately agreed with God about the nature of his sin and repented. But in Genesis 4, the Lord comes to Cain and similarly asks, Where are you? Where's your brother? And now we don't know how old Cain was, how old Abel was at the time of this whole episode. But I kind of imagine Cain like we all were when we were teenagers. Cain's like a teenage, a 16-year-old teenage boy or something who's playing video games. and is really difficult to get his attention. Like, son, 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 yeah, what? Yes. Where's your brother? I don't know. Well, when's the last time you saw him? I don't know. When am, I'm not his babysitter. This is kind of his reaction. Like, that's disrespectful in and of itself, right? Like, if one of your kids responded to you in that way, that would be disrespectful. How much more of a hardened heart would it be if this 16-year-old teenage son had, like, shivved his brother in the back and, like, dumped his body in the arroyo and then came in and said, I don't know. I'm not his babysitter. Like, that is a hard, hard heart. At this point, God's patience has run out and there must be punishment for sin. God says in verse 11, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain couldn't just bury his brother's body. He couldn't just cover up his sin. Abel's blood is still calling out, while covered, is still calling out from the dirt, screaming for vengeance. And in a curse similar to how God cursed Cain's parents, God tells Cain that he won't be able to do his job anymore. Cain was a farmer. And even though Cain had to work to make the ground yield its crops because of the curse that we find in Genesis 3, Cain could still probably come up with some pretty good harvests, but no longer. The ground itself would no longer grow for Cain anymore. God tells him, you'll be a fugitive, a wanderer from now on. You will, have never, you will never have peace and rest. I am exiling you away from me, just like I exiled your parents. But just as there was mercy when God exiled Adam and Eve, unbelievably, 
God shows mercy to Cain as well. Cain worries that everyone will know that he's a murderer and cursed by God. He's worried that others might try to avenge this death of Abel. So in verse 15, God says, Not so. If anyone seeks revenge, I will take vengeance on him. You deserve to die, Cain, and yet I will protect you. And so God puts a mark on Cain. We have no idea what this is. I like to envision it like a lightning bolt scar on his forehead or something. I don't know. But this wasn't. I think we can, we can I think wrongfully think that this is kind of some sort of like a scarlet letter type sign on him. The mark of Cain that will show everyone of his guilt. That will show the world how much of a sinner he is. But no, this is a mark warning anyone who would be tempted to kill Cain that what would happen to them if they did. This was God's grace on Cain's life. But even still, Cain doesn't see his sin. He doesn't recognize God's grace and mercy. He doesn't see his sin, his murder, as that big of a deal. As his brother's cold and bloody corpse lies behind him, Cain is essentially saying, that's not fair. What you are doing is not fair. When we fully understand the nature of our sin, we know God's curse on us to be just and fair. Our sin is an eternal rebellion against a good, gracious, wise God. And God's curse is just as good and right, whether it is in response to a taking of a piece of fruit or the murder of a brother. Only a minimized view, a self-justifying view of sin says that's not fair. And so in verse 16, Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He is exiled to the east, just like his parents, in a land, Nod, which literally means the place of wandering, the land of wandering. And then, for the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, you might be tempted to just see that it's a bunch of names and a genealogy. You might, as you're skimming this chapter 5, and you see over in the subtitles of chapter 6, Oh, Noah, I know him. I know, I know that story. And you might be tempted to just skip chapter 5. We're not going to do that. I hope you didn't do that this, this week as you were perhaps reading ahead and preparing for today. Because chapter 5 is important. Our God does not waste words. If you thought Adam's sin was bad and you thought Cain's sin was bad, you might think, as a result of the cursing, that all of this might bring about repentance, might bring about reconciliation. But no, Cain's sin actually just brings more sin. And so now, secondly, after the hardening of sin, let's now think through the spiraling of sin. So Cain leaves. He takes a wife. He builds a city, which the Hebrew word for city can mean any kind of settlement. So we're probably just talking about um, some sort of a, a few gatherings of structures or small buildings. But interestingly, God curses Cain with wandering, but Cain seemingly again says, nah, I'm good. I'm going to build a city. I'll keep doing whatever I want. I'm just going to settle right here, thank you very much. And so in this next, next section, we read of his descendants. We read that Enoch fathers Erod, and Erod fathers Mahujael, and Mahujael fathers Methushael, and Methushael fathers a guy named Lamech. Any of you 
have any brothers or sons or friends named Mahujael or Mathushael? There's a reason for that. They are in the line that finds its short-term end in Lamech. And Lamech, our first hint that Lamech may not be a good guy, a guy who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is that he is the first polygamist. He takes two wives in chapter 4, verse 19, ignoring the creation mandate from Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think you'll see plenty more of this unfolding story of polygamy throughout the book of Genesis. But then we see what's known as Lamech's taunt song in verses 23 and 24. Lamech sings this song. He, he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech is saying, you think my great-great-grandpappy Cain was bad? I killed a, I've killed a bunch of guys. I killed a boy for just kind of hitting me. God promised to avenge Cain sevenfold. I take things into my own hands and avenge even minor offenses 77-fold. He's proud of his sin. Things are getting worse. Things are spiraling. But before we get to Lamech, we've got some interesting things going on in the verses just prior to this. In verses 23, or 20 through 22, we find out that Lamech's sons are the fathers or are the creators of the domestication of livestock. They're the ones who have first probably domesticated donkeys, camels. They have developed musical instruments. They are the fathers or the creators of metalworking, perhaps bronze and iron. This is becoming a bustling city full of culture, full of military might. And even though Cain and his descendants, Lamech, are really sinful and they have set their faces against God, maybe... Maybe actually it is through this line, through Cain's line, this line of military might, that God will finally crush the head of the serpent. After all, Cain is the oldest, he is the firstborn, and Abel is dead. God will keep his promises, won't he, through the line of Adam and Eve? Well, all this is to set up the sharp contrast that's coming. We've seen sin harden, we've seen sin spiral through these generations. But now, simultaneously, and on parallel tracks, let's consider the seed of blessing. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. So just as God had fathered Adam and gave him blessing, the one through whom God would bless the entire world, Adam now gives his blessing to Seth. He is fathered in his likeness, in his image. The line of the seed of the woman is going through Seth, not the expected firstborn, not the culturally important, not the military powerful. 
not the musical, cultured line of Cain, but through the quieter line of Seth. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that we know that Seth is quiet. He's shy and meek or something. But we do know that he actually doesn't domesticate livestock. He doesn't make music, or at least in the way that his brother's offspring would. What is Seth's line known for? What is his family known for? In the verse 26, his people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And if you'll see, in, if you're using the ESV or most English translations, that word Lord is in all caps. This is the first time we see the name, the covenant name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of Yahweh. They are calling out in formal worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I just think of what Paul tells us to pray for, for our governmental leaders. Not that we should pray that our leaders would allow us to do whatever we want, would allow us to do whatever we want creatively or politically or artistically, not with military might or power at all, but... Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is Seth's family. Leading quiet, dignified lives, calling upon the name of the Lord. In the first gospel of Genesis 3.15, we know that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and now we have narrowed that line through the line of Seth. But the word offspring or seed, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, can mean an individual person, but it can also be used collectively. We see Paul do this in the book of Galatians. And Moses does some, something pretty neat here to compare the collective seed of the serpent, which Cain and Lamech have proven themselves to be, the, the seed of the serpent. Moses does something to compare that seed to be at odds with the collective seed of the woman, those who would call upon the name of the Lord. How many generations was Lamech away from Cain? If you do some counting, Lamech is six generations away from Cain. Well, six generations away from Seth, we find another Enoch. But Enoch is the polar opposite from Lamech. He is... He is Lamech is to Cain what Enoch is to Seth. In verse 24, chapter 5, we find that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. This is a really strange verse. It seems that, other than Elijah, Enoch is the only other human who did not physically die, but somehow the Lord took him. He walked with God. As opposed to Lamech, Enoch is walking with with God. One commentator writes, Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and he liked his company, because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all of our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested by all that we think of. A line that has just been like, sitting in my craw for the last three or four months when we sang the song Christ is Mine Forevermore several months ago at Christ Church. This line, I, I've sung this song many, many times. You all sing this here still, yes? 
I've sung this song lots of times, and I just kind of, I don't know if it's because it's the very first line of the whole song that I just breeze through it, but it has just been stuck in my imagination the last few months. The first few lines says, mine are days that God has numbered. What, do you know? I was made to walk with him. I exist so that I might walk with God. I exist for these in the cool of the morning, walk, walks with God that Adam and Eve experienced. Who knows what that means? I exist in the way that Lamech walks with God, moving in the same direction with him. Not that I'm consciously thinking of him with every conscious thought, but that in all that I think of, I am thinking of him. This is Enoch. And I think Moses is showing us that just as we're able to trace Cain's hardening of sin down to Lamech's, a hardening, a brazening of sin, we're also able to, now on parallel tracks, trace Enoch's love and obedience to God from Seth's obedience to God, from Seth's family calling upon the Lord. If Cain's sin multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, the opposite can be true as well. I heard this text taught many years ago by a guy who had four sons at the time. I thought he was a maniac for having four children, four sons, and now here I find myself in his shoes. But he said that when he parents, he doesn't just hope that his boys will one day grow up as socially acceptable, as polite young men who get good jobs. When he parents, he's thinking about six generations from now that his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, these people who, perhaps centuries from now, will not even remember his name, but will, Lord willing, be the recipients of parents who love the ways of the Lord, who walk with God. Parents, your goal should not merely be to raise respectable children, polite children. I know many respectable and polite people who hate God. Now, of course, our parenting is not what saves our children. We can parent in humble and gracious godliness, surrounding them with the scriptures, surrounding them with a good church, and still have children who reject the gospel. But our goal should not be just to raise children who are good at what they do. Our goal should raise kids whose core identity is not that they are good musicians or hard workers good farmers, good athletes, culturally significant in some other way, but that they call upon the name of the Lord. That they aren't just submissive and polite as four-year-olds or as 14-year-olds, but that they are becoming godly future parents themselves who rightfully worship God like Abel with a right heart and with right motives, not just the right religious motions. I think too often we can just assume that Perhaps Jesus is to return in our lifetime or our kids' lifetime so that we can be lazy. Like our job as parents is just to get our kids to a place of necessary conversion so that they are safe in Christ. But what if Jesus doesn't return in a thousand years? What if, as one author asks, church historians in the future describe our own era, that of like 1,000 to 3,000 AD, as the middle period of church history? Or even more mind-blowing, what if in the year 9117, church historians refer to our era 
our era in 2021 as the early church, which is entirely possible. We ought to be thinking generationally. Mid-high students, high schoolers, I'm talking to you here too. Perhaps a lot of you haven't give, given one thought to your own future children, to what life might be like for you as a parent. Certainly not being a grandparent. The Lord may never give you children. You may never marry. But you should start thinking about your hypothetical kids, your hypothetical offspring and your grandkids and your great-grandkids today. You yourself don't wake up one morning as a 35-year-old parent or a 65-year-old grandparent as calling upon the Lord, as walking with God. With a love for his word, a love for his church, you grow and mature slowly into deeper love for Christ each day, which begins today. I told our youth kids at Desert Springs here, probably every single week, you, you'll never be what you're not becoming. Who you are right now is affecting your great-grandchildren. For good or for bad. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. But also be killing sin or it will very possibly be killing them. If, be, if killing sin for your own sake and your joy, your own joy wasn't good enough, be killing sin for your great-grandchildren's joy. But we are not bound, all that to say, or destined to repeat the failure to repeat the sin of our parents or our grandparents. Praise the Lord, God's grace is greater. He can absolutely intervene and interrupt cycles, generational cycles of sin. Praise God for that. But nor are, are our kids or our grandkids bound or destined to trust the Lord because we do. I think most of you have heard Don Carson say that one generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third generation forgets and denies it. Here's the reality, that outside of Christ, we actually are not Abel or Seth or Enoch. Outside of Christ, we are Cain. We are Lamech. If we looked hard in the mirror, we are all the seed of the serpent with murder in our hearts. The blood of Abel is still in the ground accusing us today. Our sin and its effects is ever there reminding us of curse, of our separation and exile with God, from God. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, which brings reconciliation through his sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Both have blood, but Jesus' blood screams louder. The accusing blood of Abel, which exiled us, is no match for the reconciling blood of Christ, which has brought us near. Jesus, all our trust is in your blood. You've rescued us through your great love. Now, why this fear? Why this feeling of separation and exile for those of us who are trusting in him? Abel's blood screams for vengeance, but Jesus' blood drowns it out with shouts of forgiveness. In his death on the cross, he has become our substitute, bearing the sign of God's curse so that we might receive the sign of blessing, of belonging, not of exile any longer. 
We can never kill enough sin. We can never bring enough faith-filled sacrifice. It is Christ alone. And his, his life lived and his death died for you, which can save. And oh, the grace, oh, the love, the kindness of Jesus who so patiently walks with us when we were not willing to walk with him. The grace and love and kindness of Jesus that transforms us. And yet, the very next verse in Hebrews 12 just after where Gina left off, the blood of Abel speaks a better word, or the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But the very next verse in Hebrews says, see that you do not refuse he who is speaking. This is another counseling session, a moment of interjection, slow down, danger ahead. God is coming to you in a counseling session while you likely haven't murdered Nevertheless, you, like all of humanity, stand accused, found guilty of sin against your maker, the high king of heaven. And not only that, but so much of the book of Hebrews is about walking in faith together. The reality is, is that for all of you who, who are a covenanted body of believers, you are your brother's keeper. And he, she, is yours. You are bound together to care for one another, to mutually support one another, to exhort one another, to hold one another as we walk together, following our great shepherd together. The final stanza of William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Unconquered. It sums up the stories of Cain and Lamech and our own heart just really, really well. If you don't know the first couple lines, I think you know the, maybe the third and fourth line. He, he writes, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm not sure that four lines of written language perhaps better sum up the American worldview than that. But we know that from Genesis 1 and 2, it's a lie. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You did not. I am not the master of my fate. I am not the captain of my soul. However much I think that I am, I am accountable to God who is in heaven, so do not harden your hearts like Cain, like Lamech. Do not ignore the slow down, curve ahead sign. I need my brothers and sisters, and they need me as we walk with God together. There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved, Peter preaches in Acts 4. And so like Seth and his family, the family of blessing, now call upon the name of the Lord. He is faithful to save. He is faithful to welcome you into a different family, into a better family, this new covenant family, by a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel welcoming, belonging, walking with God together. May it be so. We pray that God would give us the grace to do just that. Our Father, we are sorry for our sin, for our rebellion. We are sorry for the hatred, the murder in our own hearts, even against some of our brothers and sisters in this room. Forgive us, Father, for how we have harbored resentment, harbored hatred. 
Father, we are thankful that you do not just immediately condemn us, but that you are patient, you are gracious, you are loving, you are kind. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to us when we would not come to you. Thank you for walking with us when we would not walk with you. But now, by your spirit, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to care for one another as we walk together, as exiles now to the kingdom of heaven. Help us, we pray, as you lead us Transform us and keep us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.